Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler. I am the special temporary primary host of the show. Today, I am joined by Greg Knuckles. He is currently the permanent guest co-host for now um, on an ongoing basis. Um, We've got a lot to cover in today's episode, a lot of great content. But before we get to that, uh, you might be one of the many people who feels like you enjoy the podcast and also feel like you want to support the podcast. And of course, that would be greatly appreciated. And there are many ways to do that. You could like, rate, or subscribe wherever you happen to access this show. You could join our email newsletter at strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter. You could check out our coaching program. We have a lot of very talented coaches over at strongerbyscience.com slash coaching. They offer one-on-one coaching for training and sports nutrition. You could use our discount code at bulksupplements.com. The code is SBSPOD. That gets you a 5% discount off of your entire order. You could subscribe to the Mass Research Review, a monthly research review covering all the most important studies in exercise and nutrition. And finally, you could subscribe to MacroFactor. That is the diet app that we created, and it's got a free trial, which is great because you can take it for a spin, see if you like it, and we think you will. Uh, Greg, road to the stage. How's it going? You know what? Actually, let me say one thing about uh, bulk supplements real quick. Okay. So uh, I just learned this recently. Uh I, f- I feel like I shouldn't admit this publicly, but here I go. I personally don't take creatine. I think it's great. I just forget to take supplements, and so I don't take supplements. Uh, but apparently there's a creatine shortage. Uh, a, a journalist reached out to me uh, maybe like a month ago asking like, hey, what do you know about the creatine shortage? And I said, nothing, but here are some people who might. Uh, and apparently it's reached the point that there were some posts in the Stronger by Science Facebook group uh, w- within the last week or two. Like, hey, the place I typically get creatine is either out or their prices are up like 400%. Like, where do where can I go to get creatine? Uh, I just checked. And at least as of the time of recording, uh, creatine monohydrate is in stock in bulk supplements. Uh, and, you know, since it is a like a wholesale provider. Uh, I think their prices are up relative to where they used to be. Um, but you can still get like a kilogram for 56 bucks. And I haven't done this math, but I feel like a kilo of creatine is going to last you for like three years. Uh, so, yep, if uh, if the creatine shortage is biting you right now, uh, you can still get it for a good price at bulksupplements.com. Yeah, these are strange times. I, I've seen threads about people trying to figure out where to get creatine and even just where to get meat. Like some people have been uh, struggling to get their hands on chicken breast or they're finding it at, you know, really, really inflated prices. So uh, that's definitely some important news to share. All right. So now act- actual road to the stage. Uh, don't have too much to say. Uh, I did hit a new low this past week but haven't broken into the 225s yet, which will be the next uh, the next milestone of sorts. Um, but yeah, uh, overall, things are going good, but no- nothing, nothing really warranting uh, going in depth about. Good stuff. Um, I have virtually nothing to share about the road to Athens. Uh, smooth sailing, things are going relatively well. Um, I've been super busy the last couple of weeks, uh, doing a whole bunch of writing. So I haven't had a lot of time to, 
tackle a lot of my training and rehab head on. It's basically just been getting in and moving around enough to maintain what I've got. Uh, and you know, basically just exercising to maintain health and happiness. Mm -hmm. Like if I truly skip all exercise for a couple weeks, um, I just don't seem to be as happy a person. Um, so yeah, I've just been getting in there, having fun, moving around, uh, trying to use some muscles so that they don't fully atrophy. Uh, so yeah, nothing really to share there. What about feats of strength? Yeah. So this is, uh, this is one of the rare feats of strength that I have to put a, a spoiler alert disclaimer on. So, uh, uh, this is about the person who recently won the World's Strongest Man competition. Uh, and the reason I say spoiler alert is World's Strongest Man is also televised, but it's televised like several months after the fact. Uh, so the competition just took place. And if you want to wait to find out who wins until you can actually watch the competition on TV, uh, you know, skip the rest of this segment. Uh, but if that doesn't bother you, uh, I'm about to give the name, so three, two, one. Uh, Tom Stoltman won again, back to back, and this was, uh, I, I would say, a pretty, a pretty dominating performance. Uh, he, I think, beat second place by like 11 points, which is a, a pretty comfortable victory uh, in World's Strongest Man, and uh, he he had to feel really good going into the last event. So Tom Tom Stoltman is a very good all-around strongman but he if he's known for one event it's atlas stones like he's uh he's the current god of atlas stones and and maybe this is this is more debatable but you could make a strong case that he is the best at at atlas stones of all time like you you might put like peak thor in that conversation you might put poundstone in that conversation you might put peak brian shaw in that conversation but Tom Stoltman is definitely on the Mount Rushmore of uh, of Atlas Stone uh, loaders, and so he was he was up going into Atlas Stone. So he he had to know that the competition was in the bag, uh, and he went ahead and took first on that event to uh, to seal a, a pretty comfortable victory. Uh, so congrats to him, Tom Stoltman, back to back World Strongest Man champion. All right, good stuff. Um, so for the content in today's episode, uh, I've got a little research roundup, just a little bit of a brief update on buffering supplements. Um, cause there've been a couple papers that both hit the press this past month, uh, that are worth diving into. So I think we'll start there. Um, you know, this past month, uh, if you're a mass subscriber, you're actually going to get some more in-depth updates about these studies on June 1st. Uh, the June 1st issue uh, is going to cover some of this stuff. But uh, yeah, there are two papers that came out recently. One was on beta alanine. And another one was a study on a combination of anserine and carnosine. And that's a combination that I've discussed on the podcast before as extremely preliminary research. And I'm uh, moving that up a category to very preliminary research. Uh, so it is making its way toward being a household name and a supplement staple, uh, one rung of that ladder at a time. So starting with uh, what might be considered some of the bad news, I think, um, or good news, depending on your perspective. I think, you know, my interactions with the fitness world is largely people who do resistance training, uh, largely because they're into powerlifting 
they're into bodybuilding, whether they compete or not, uh, or they're more of a hobbyist. They're interested in changing their physique, getting stronger. Um, but, you know, we don't, you know, we, we certainly love to have people in our audience who are into a variety of different pursuits, CrossFit, Strongman, et cetera, you know, but we are not a CrossFit heavy brand explicitly, you know, so we, we get a lot of people who are into various pursuits within lifting, but a lot of times the people I see supplementing the most with beta alanine from my window into the fitness world, uh, it's people who are largely interested in hypertrophy outcomes. Uh, it's a lot of people who are doing a lot of their training in that, you know, eight, 10, 12 reps per set. Maybe they throw in some sets of 15. They take at least a minute rest between sets, uh, sometimes up to two or three, depending on the exercise and, you know, for the heavy compounds, even greater. Um, or they're just people who are uh, uh, general pre-workout enthusiasts. Yeah, or, or people who love pre-workouts and said, hey, there's beta alanine in here. That's terrific. Yeah. Uh, I've heard of that, and, and it seems to work for something, you know, uh, which is definitely true. But uh, what's really interesting about the beta alanine research is that um, you would think for, for a supplement that's so well-established, you would assume that there's a lot more very direct lifting research with beta alanine. And there's actually a lot of gaps in that literature. There's, there's not as much pure ecologically valid lifting research with beta alanine as you would probably think. Uh, now there's a lot of research on beta alanine, uh, largely focusing on a bunch of lab based exercise tests that are frankly designed to determine if beta alanine does what it's supposed to do. Right. So beta alanine is supposed to increase muscle carnosine. Carnosine is an intracellular buffer. So when you're doing high intensity glycolytic exercise, very carbohydrate dependent exercise, and you are uh, generating a bunch of lactate and you're accumulating a bunch of excess uh, hydrogen ions, a bunch of excess protons kind of floating around in there, uh, carnosine comes in handy because it helps buffer some of those excess hydrogen ions. And what that does is it delays uh, some of those drops in localized pH. And as a result, uh, it delays fatigue to some extent. So that is kind of the premise of beta alanine supplementation is it's helping with buffering. It's uh, reducing uh, or, or delaying the onset of that localized acidosis. And that seems to be implicated as a fatigue reducing mechanism in this type of glycolytic exercise. So a lot of the beta alanine research, like I said, they use lab-based exercise tests that are, you know, uh, sprints that, that last for, you know, somewhere between 30 seconds and two minutes, or, or they do really intensive repeated sprint exercise bouts. And what they're trying to do is really hammer that glycolytic uh, energy system, you know, that, that anaerobic energy system that is so carbohydrate dependent. And they're trying to uh, really ramp up the, uh, the acidosis induced by exercise. So they don't say, hey, what's the perfect exercise test for this? Give them a set of eight. Like th that's not how you really uh, design an exercise protocol to make beta alanine maximally useful. Yeah. But What's interesting is a lot of people use it in this, uh, this context of trying to promote hypertrophy within a standard hypertrophy-focused training program. So like I said, 8, 10, 12, maybe 15 reps per set. 
you know, plenty of rest between sets, um, you know, just to make sure that you're able to, to give it your best with the next, uh, the next set coming up. And there's really not a ton of research looking at how beta alanine impacts this specific type of exercise. There are, you know, you know, some certainly research papers looking at various lifting outcomes, but when you look at the results, they're not as consistent as, and as conclusive as you'd like to see, you know, there's some uh, variability from study to study in terms of outcomes. And there's just generally a, a relative lack of research uh, compared to what you might expect. So there is a recent paper that I am going to link in the show notes. They were looking at beta alanine supplementation, uh, 6.4 grams per day. The cumulative dose uh, should have been adequate to achieve an ergogenic effect, um, you know, in theory. Um, but unfortunately, you know, within this program, the, the part participants were doing about 12 reps per set, uh, three sets per exercise, going to, you know, concentric failure and resting a minute between sets, resting two minutes between exercises. Beta alanine in this particular study really just didn't do much at all in, in terms of facilitating hypertrophy or facilitating strength gains. I think it was eight, maybe 10 weeks or so in duration. Mm -hmm. uh, so the dose per day was high enough. The duration was long enough. The cumulative dose should have been sufficient for beta alanine to do what it's supposed to do. And in this case, uh, you know, beta alanine just really didn't do much for this program. Now it, it, it was an eight week study, eight week study. Yeah. yeah that's what I thought. Um, so the, uh, the, the uh, takeaway here is based on this research, based on this particular study, not very promising for the people who like to use beta alanine within the context of a pretty standard, pretty typical hypertrophy program. Um, now, nine or 10 people per group, one study, of course, we don't want to get too carried away and, and kind of put the nail in the coffin of beta alanine. Um, but there's not really a ton of research suggesting that beta alanine directly is efficacious within this type of training program. Mm -hmm. And here is one piece of evidence that chips away at some of our confidence in that conclusion. And so for me going into this study, um, my suspicion was that if you were doing sets of 12, going to failure, only one minute of rest between sets, I would have anticipated a small benefit from beta alanine. And when I say small, when you're talking about standardized effect size categories, what I really mean is trivial. But for a lot of people, trivial matters uh, in terms of, you know, if it's non-zero reliably, we'll take it in a yeah. lot of cases. Yeah. So I was expecting probably a trivial effect of beta alanine in this context. Uh, that's not what was observed. And we're going to need some more research to really dig into this to figure out exactly how specialized beta alanine is for lifters. Uh, you know, we know for certain, um, well, that's about as, as bold a statement as I'd ever make. So there is a, a very large body of evidence suggesting that beta alanine is effective when you are doing, you know, truly purely anaerobic glycolytic sprint type exercise. When you're, if you're doing exhaustive bouts of exercise that are two minutes in duration and you're doing several of them, like beta alanine, ought to help in that scenario. There's plenty of evidence to suggest that. But when it comes to lifting applications, this study, uh, like I said, chips away at our confidence that it has a lot of utility in a typical hypertrophy program with uh, that kind of standard hypertrophy rep range and the standard one or two minutes of rest between sets. Uh, I still believe, uh, based on mostly mechanistic uh, theory, 
that beta alanine probably has applications when it comes to things like CrossFit, uh, other forms of circuit type training, strongman medleys, possibly, uh, depending on exactly how the medleys put together. Uh, so I, I'm not ready to say that beta alanine is useless for hypertrophy or for the typical hypertrophy program, but um, we we don't yet have a definitive line where we say these are the programming uh, characteristics that make use of beta alanine, and these are the programming characteristics at which it becomes useless. We don't really know where that line is, and we don't know which side of the line uh, typical hypertrophy programming falls on. Mm -hmm. So it's an area where we're going to need some more research. And like I said, if you're into hypertrophy-focused training and uh, you've been using beta-alanine because uh, you know you, like me, anticipated that it would be at least somewhat helpful in these applications... Uh, like I said, this could be good news or bad news. Uh, it could be good news because you say, oh, great. I don't have to spend money on it anymore. And I don't have to, you know, take the two grams like, you know, three or four times throughout the day, depending on how you split it up. So, you know, beta alanine is kind of a pain to dose several times throughout the day to avoid all the tingling. Um, so you might look at this as a good thing or you might look at it as a bad thing because you say, hey, I, I kind of have that sunk cost where I've been using beta alanine for so long and paying for it. I was hoping it was doing something for me. Maybe it's not. Um, again, I want to reiterate, we're talking about small sample research. We're talking about one finding. We shouldn't get too carried away. Um, but I do think there's a, a perspective uh, that's very common, which is that beta alanine is a slam dunk for hypertrophy type training. And I don't think we're quite ready to make that type of conclusion yet. Yeah, so if if I could if I could kind of swing in here with with a bit of theory, and and I'll admit on the front end, uh, this was your segment, so I did not, uh, you know, do a lit search, put things in the outline. So the things I'm about to say, I know I've seen research supporting it, but it w it won't be in the show notes, so just take my word for it. Um, <laughs> but uh, so one. One interesting thing, I think, is I I think that people anticipate that for lifting-related outcomes, uh, that buffering is going to improve performance more than it actually will. And I think that's based on what used to be a very reasonable and seemingly well-supported assumption that when your pH drops in your muscles, that that uh, just, like like mechanistically interferes with muscle contraction, reduces force output, and therefore reduces performance. But there have been some mechanistic studies uh, within the last like five years or so investigating whether or not that's actually the case. So uh, essentially there's a difference between the effect of pH per se and the way you would get to a low muscle pH just via exercise. Um, and, and so essentially you need to be able to separate those two to investigate how much changes in pH actually affect muscle contractile performance. And so there've been some studies where essentially what they do is they just isolate muscle fibers and they like, so like bathe them in solutions with different pHs and then just look to see like, Hey, how acidic of a solution do muscle fibers have to be in before contractile performance actually decreases? And it turns out it has to be like really fucking acidic, like mm. more, more acidic than your muscles would achieve during exercise. Um, 
And so, like I said, there's a difference between acidosis per se and acidosis as a result of exercise. And so basically, like, the the way you would reach a point of intense local acidosis in the context of exercise is you're just doing a fair bit of very high-intensity exercise. And so you see muscular performance drop off, you see pH drop off. Those two things are tightly associated. And so it's, it's logical to assume that the pH is the actual causative factor there, but it seems like it's not. So one of the other things that happens when you're doing that really intense exercise is, you know, you're, you're splitting ATP into ADP in, in an inorganic phosphate that kind of drifts off. Uh, and hopefully, you know, you're, you're burning energy fast enough that you can resynthesize ATP, but when exercise is intense enough, that doesn't fully keep up. And so you get an accumulation of inorganic phosphate within the muscle, which is also happening, you know, on the same time course that pH is dropping. And the mechanistic research I've seen suggests that the accumulation of inorganic phosphate is actually more of the causal factor that is reducing muscular performance, uh, suggesting that, you know, if you... If you're taking a buffering supplement to make sure your pH doesn't drop as far, um, you know, that that reduction in acidosis probably isn't actually going to affect muscular performance all that much because ultimately that's not doing anything for inorganic phosphate accumulation. So you're you're essentially trying to fix a problem that may not actually be as much of a problem as we previously assumed it was. Um now, when, when pH drops, so like getting to your point of, uh, of beta alanine doing a pretty good job for improving performance for things lasting like 90 seconds to maybe up to five minutes or so. Uh, so one thing acidosis does do is it affects uh, energy metabolism, basically. So when pH drops, uh, it kind of shifts it shifts you away from like anaerobic glycolytic metabolism. Like your your muscles basically say like, oh shit, like things are getting acidic. Let's stop getting as acidic. Like let's do less anaerobic glycolysis, kind of slow things down. So we were mostly using more aerobic metabolism. And so it, it kind of makes sense that if you have that kicking in really early and say like a two minute all out sprint that you it's basically keeping you from tapping quite as far into your anaerobic reserve. So it, it makes sense that a buffering supplement would improve performance in that regard. But if you're talking about, you know, even even like a high rep set of 20 or something, like that's not going, <laughs> I, I shouldn't state that too confidently. That's probably not primarily going to be limited by glycolytic versus oxidative metabolism. That's probably going to be limited by you know, on rep 19, can you just produce enough contractile force still? And so for, for something like that, that's going to be limited far more by phosphate than, than acidosis per se. So I I think that that could also partially explain why like beta alanine does seem like it's panning out pretty well for, uh, like, like anaerobic, but like endurancey type stuff, uh, but not quite as much for lifting. Yeah, so I, I was aware that that research was starting to get some momentum, which is why I forget exactly how I phrased it, but I mentioned that, uh, you know, drops in pH have been associated with, you mm-hmm. know, the acceleration of fatigue. Um, but that does bring up a question. So, like, I remember back in the day you had reviewed a 
uh, a mass in mass, you reviewed an article about hyperventilation Mm -hmm. and hyperventilation in that paper seemed to be effective for prolonging uh, or delaying fatigue and increasing reps to failure. Um, Was there an alternate mechanism that they put forward there outside of acid base balance? I got to be honest with you. I, I don't remember. Yeah, because because I you know I I definitely I definitely do not subscribe to the idea that pH uh, independently is is really driving muscular fatigue in the typical lifting scenario. Um, but but there are some of those findings out there where you know you you can find these instances of things that uh, you know in theory favorably alter acid base balance and and they do seem in some circumstances to enable more repetitions completed. So mm-hmm. like uh, there was the hyperventilation study. I'll link it in the show notes. I forget the, the uh, it was uh, Sakamoto and colleagues, um, you know, but, but they had basically they had individuals hyperventilating before sets um, and they did, I think, six sets to failure with bench press and leg press. Uh, and, you know, they're reaching failure in the ballpark. You know, the, the first set, uh, you know, they were hitting failure at like, uh, nine to 13 reps. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, and then of course it dropped from set to set. Um, but it was able to generally afford them an extra couple reps per set. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know if I'm ready to, so go, go ahead. I, I, I was just going to say, off. I'm not sure if I'm ready to fully, uh, bail on the entire concept of pH being, I, I'm not ready to I haven't seen enough yet to, to say like, oh, this is fully irrelevant, um, you know, because th- there are some of these findings, you know, perhaps we don't understand that the mechanism of these uh, particular uh, interventions well enough, you know, when it comes to things like beta alanine and sodium bicarbonate and hyperventilation even. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely an area worth exploring in greater detail for sure. So I, I wonder... I wonder if, if hyperventilation is maybe less related to pH and more just related to, to oxygen saturation where, um, so there, there was a paper on repeated, uh, like cycle sprint intervals from, from maybe like 2013, 2014, something like that, that was looking at not just power output, but also, uh, the energy systems that, that the, uh, subjects were using uh, across those those uh, I think it was three uh, three bouts of of uh, high intensity cycling that that was either fifteen either fifteen or thirty seconds a pop. Uh, but what they found is that even though that at least like theoretically should be a very anaerobic thing, what they found is that especially by the third sprint. Uh, there, it, it seemed like their anaerobic energy systems, like basically weren't doing anything <laughs> like, uh, th- they were just so tapped out that they were going as hard as they could, but the vast, vast majority of the actual energy was coming from aerobic metabolism. So it wouldn't surprise me if maybe one of two things were the case. Uh, so, you know, maybe just during the first set or two. You're kind of like hypersaturating your blood and your myoglobin with oxygen. And so maybe uh, like in the first set or two, you're reaching failure just like purely due to muscular fatigue, but you haven't like fully tapped out your anaerobic energy systems. And so they they still have a little bit more juice to give on the last few sets where maybe they wouldn't have before. Um, 
I said two things, but no, that's I, I'm I'm gonna stick with one. So that I don't think that was offered by the authors, but that is a other potential alternate explanation. And and yeah, like to to be clear, I'm not um I'm not ruling out buffering supplements do doing anything. Um but like basically what I'm trying to uh at least hypothesize about is that they seem to to have pretty reliable positive effects for you know things lasting to up to about 5 minutes and more kind of like endurancey type stuff like you know sprinting 800 meters versus uh like squatting a set of 15 or something like that and one of those uh you know like both of them are going to be impacted by metabolism and just can you turn over ATP fast enough but the sprint is is going to be almost exclusively limited by that whereas the resistance training performance could be limited by that or could just be limited by just sheer ability to generate contractile force um and so you know it it could just be something that varies individual to individual like some people like you know like the buffering might help everyone when it comes to the 800 meter sprint or but for resistance training it could be that like some people are failing the last rep via one mechanism where buffering supplements would help some people are failing the last rep via another mechanism where buffering supplements wouldn't help as much like i i'm i'm just saying that like in efforts where just the sheer ability to generate contractile force can be the limiter um maybe you shouldn't expect buffering supplements to as reliably improve performance. Yeah, and that's definitely been reflected um, pretty much across the board with this class of supplements. You know, it's difficult to say, oh, you're never going to find a positive finding, but there is a lot more variability from study to study where, uh, you know, you see some findings that look promising, and then you see some findings that just make it seem like there's really not much happening there, you Mm -hmm. know, so... Uh, I, I think this conversation really highlights the the general state of uncertainty when it comes to uh, different buffering techniques, I guess, because, you know, you could lump in uh, sodium bicarbonate, you could lump in beta alanine, but you could also lump in targeted hyperventilation as a non-supplement technique. Um, but yeah, it, there's, um, despite the uh, high level of public interest in terms of the supplement consumer uh, there's not uh, a lot of consistency in the evidence. And I, I think there are some mechanistic details that really warrant uh, some further exploration. So hopefully people will uh, will kind of, uh, I, I'm sure that 80, 90% of exercise scientists do listen to this podcast. So uh, <laughs> hopefully, you know, we're going to see a lot of masters and, and PhD thesis projects coming up on these topics. Uh, one thing I did want to mention briefly is um, there was a new paper on the combination of anserine and carnosine. I'm going to be really brief with this because I don't think there's a lot of practical application yet. Um, I did a quick search, and I don't think it's easy to find anserine as a uh, human-grade uh, <laughs> supplement or food product. I, I think it's kind of difficult to find uh, based on a quick search. So, um, you know, it's not like you're going to walk into vitamin shop or GNC and say, hey, can you lead me to the anserine? It's it's not going to be there, um, but you might be able to find it uh, potentially on the Internet. I'm not really sure. But um, anyway, there was a new paper from the same group that's really been kind of 
establishing the foundation of this research, looking at ansarin and carnosine. And the the concept here is, you know, beta alanine, like you said, is is commonly found in pre-workouts, but there's really not much of a reason to believe that beta alanine does much at all acutely. Uh, mm-hmm. Usually studies will say, hey, take this for a month and we'll see if it did anything or take it for two months maybe. Uh, so the idea is that beta alanine slowly over time is going to increase carnosine content of your muscle. And then your muscle can actually use the carnosine, not the beta alanine, to actually do stuff that should help. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's kind of the theoretical foundation there. So you take beta alanine to increase carnosine over time. And intuitively, people might wonder, why not just take carnosine? Seems straightforward. Uh, the bioavailability is terrible. Uh, we have an enzyme in our blood called uh, carnosinase. Um, and basically it breaks down the carnosine into its constituent parts. And at that point, you might as well have just taken beta alanine. It basically splits the carnosine into beta alanine and histidine, and you already have more than enough histidine. Uh, so again, it's, you might as well be taking beta alanine in that context. But these researchers in this research group, uh, have come up with a concept where you take carnosine so that you saturate that enzyme, the carnosinase enzyme. And then you take ansarine in combination, which is structurally similar to carnosine, has some similar physiological effects. Uh, but because the carnosinase enzyme is dealing with all that carnosine, the ansarine comes by and says, hey, I'm going to go and do what chronic beta alanine supplementation intends to do, basically. Uh, so that's the thought process. And they've done a couple of very preliminary studies here. And so far, it looks promising, you know, um, it, it, they've been, they're still in that phase of research where they are explicitly using exercise tests that are like, if this does anything at all, we have perfectly designed a test to demonstrate that, you know, so you, we're not yet in a spot where we can look at these preliminary findings and say, oh, that's definitely going to help with a set of 12. We're not at all there yet. Uh, but there are some little glimpses within this literature at some ergogenic effects, and I'm going to be very interested to see how this body of research develops. And the reason I'm interested is everyone's kind of already decided that they like beta alanine in their pre-workout, but that's not really doing anything in the hour after you consume it. You know, if you take it every day for two months, maybe maybe we're working with something. But again, even that situation you're taking really a third or a half of the beta alanine dose that you would want to be taking on a daily basis. No one's putting 6.4 grams of beta alanine in a pre-workout, at least not that I've seen. Uh, And if they did, that would be pretty unpleasant. Um, Usually if you have more than two grams in a serving, two or three-ish, it it varies obviously, but that's usually where you start to get a very tingly face, which isn't fun. Yeah, you're going to feel like ants are crawling all over your entire body. Yeah, I think I've told this story on the podcast before, but I was in an undergrad um, lab class, Mm -hmm. and we were supposed to like run a little study to learn how studies work and things like that. All these people wanted to do these totally benign things that we could do very feasibly, and I said, no, 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 class. Let's do a beta alanine little mini trial. And uh, the the... The graduate assistant teaching the course messed up the the dosing. Oh, no. And everyone's face felt like it was just, you know, on fire, just totally tingling. And everyone was not pleased because, like, no one else wanted to do beta alanine. And I was like, if we don't do beta alanine for this project, I'm out of here. I'm walking. Like, 
I was so adamant and I, it, yeah, the dosing got messed up. Everybody was fine, yeah. but it was not a pleasant afternoon for anybody. Um, but anyway, so th- this um, carnosine and serine combination does not seem to induce paresthesia, that tingling. Uh, as of now, it looks like 40 to 60 milligrams per kilogram is the right dose. It looks like an hour before exercise is the right time. But what we're going to have to figure out is, does this actually matter for lifters? We're not certain yet. And then somebody's got to actually produce this and get it in the hands of consumers, uh, assuming that the research pans out effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, but for now, we're talking about this off air. It looks like chicken broth is, is actually a really nice uh, source of both of these. So chicken broth tends to provide carnosine and anserine in a ratio of approximately one to two or one to three. It uh, varies uh, a little bit. And there's actually a paper that I'll link in the show notes that basically reads like a cookbook. They, they talk about how they went through and made their own chicken broth for this study, measured the, the content of carnosine and anserine. Um, and the dose that they gave um, provided as uh, close to getting in that range uh, that you would want in that 40 to 60 milligram per kilogram range. And they ended up giving uh, 607 milliliters of chicken broth uh, was kind of the average dose they gave. They scaled it to body mass. They went with eight milliliters per kilogram of body weight. Um, and, and when I say, you know, when I give that dosing guideline of 40 to 60 uh, milligrams per kilogram, that's of each. So 40 to 60 milligrams of carnosine and 40 to 60 milligrams of anserine. Um, so I, I probably don't need to belabor the point here because this is so preliminary that it's not highly feasible to implement, but uh, it is an area of the research that I think is really fascinating and I'm going to keep an eye on. So for now, the question of who actually benefits from buffering supplements is still very much open. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you can have some very interesting debates and arguments about this. Um, I, I do still think there's at least enough optimism that if you are uh, doing exercise where you frequently find yourself uh with burny muscles and feeling maybe a little bit nauseous and uh you know you're doing some of these circuit type exercises these medleys uh, some of this crossfit type work that we see uh i think there's still enough uh interest and optimism there to say you know if it doesn't break the bank if it's within you know what what you can afford and it's not something that you're making huge sacrifices to implement it might not be a terrible idea to add it in the mix, but yeah, there, there's a lot of uh, a lot of stuff about buffering supplements that at this point is simply not yet answered. So we'll have to wait and see. Now, Eric, I'm I'm disappointed in you because for this last segment on anserine supplementation, you shared a very interesting tidbit about anserine with me off air that you didn't just discuss on the podcast. What's that? So. It, Either you told me this or, or it was in your mass article, but you, you said that uh, I think like all other vertebrates have carnosine plus something else that, that does essentially what carnosine does and serine being one example. Yeah. And that humans are like the only vertebrate that only has carnosine and not something else. That is my understanding. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there's these different... They call them histidine containing dipeptides. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, my understanding based on the reading that I was doing is that uh, mo- all vertebrates except for humans have 
some combination of these different uh, histidine-containing dipeptides. We just have the carnosine. Uh, but, but if we do consume anserine exogenously, it would appear that we can still put it to use. That's wild, man. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's about it. Yeah, it, it is kind of fun every now and then when you find something interesting about, um, you know, I, I think the official term is comparative physiology. When yeah. you start looking at how animals deal with physiology and how humans differ in certain contexts, um, that's, that's one of my biggest regrets. Um, I was in school for way too long. I was in college for what, like nine or 10 years, every step of the way, undergrad, master's, PhD, I searched far and wide for a course on comparative physiology mm-hmm. and I never found a good one that I could work into my curriculum, yeah. uh, which is really a shame, but I'm, I'm honestly, I haven't given up on that yet. I, I still intend to take a course. So here, here's a, a reading recommendation for, for you and also just, uh, uh, listeners of the podcast, the journal of experimental biology, J E B. Uh, it's, well, it's exactly what it sounds like, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, like actual, like high quality experimental evidence. Uh, like I don't know what you're implying. Like, like f- physiology research on just like different animals. Yeah, and uh, you know, a lot of it is like really like specialized and and stuff that, quite frankly, I'm not that interested in. Like, you know, like fish are slimy. How do they go about producing that slime? Like, eh, k- kind of cool, but I don't know. I just don't care that much. But I, I'd say they have like two or three articles per issue where it's, you know, something related to metabolism or muscular work output in just like some some random animal. And I'd say like half the time that shit's like really interesting. Yeah. You know, I, I have a kind of a related, um, li- very brief anecdote, but I was at um, uh, Roger Harris. He mm-hmm. He was like, the dude who really kicked off uh, creatine performance supplementation in the American scientific literature, or the you know the, the kind of journals that we that we typically see. I mean, they, there had been people kind of writing about it, um, or, or you know, athletes using it about a decade prior. But the, the real big push for creatine research in the academic journals, Roger Harris had a, a big uh, a big role in that. And he also had a huge role in the same thing for beta alanine. Like mm-hmm. most people would. Uh, without question, consider him like, uh, you know, the, the godfather of beta alanine. And I saw one of his final lectures when he basically was was hanging up the the cleats uh, and walking away from it. And he was uh, virtually uh, pleading with the audience, does anyone have access to hummingbirds? Because <laughs> like he kind of came from that world of like, if you want to really get at something and understand how it works, a a very creative way to do that is to utilize animal models with unique physiological characteristics. And he was trying to understand the role of calcium in uh, the mechanistic uh, effects of beta alanine. Mm-hmm. And he was like, dude, I need hummingbirds who has hummingbirds. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's, it, it's really interesting to see when people uh, are doing interesting animal model research. Yeah. Uh, all right. So that segment went way longer than i expected now that's fine um but you have a bunch of cool stuff to talk about uh from our neck of the woods talking a little bit about macro factor yeah yeah so i i've got two segments i have an article discussion and uh a tech support segment that's not really a tech support segment but that's that's where we uh, uh talk about macro factor stuff 
So the article discussion uh, is the first article, the first new article that we're sharing on the new Macro Factor website. Uh, it's not specifically an article about Macro Factor, so don't, uh, you know, don't be worried to pull that up. It's not like it's just like a long form sales pitch. It's a, um, you know, a, a unique informative article, I would say. Uh, but it, it's an article on the the drawbacks of various approaches to dietary and weight management that involve calorie counting. And this was actually a very opportune time for it to come out because the Maintenance Phase podcast just had just recently had uh, an episode about calorie counting. And uh, it got shared in the Stronger by Science Facebook group. Turns out, uh, it seems that the that their audience and ours has has a pretty fair bit of overlap, um, and this is not a promise. But they're th- so they they said that their episode on calories is going to be a two parter, and only the first part is out. I I may do a uh, I don't know if I should call it a review or a rebuttal or what. Just you know, a, a segment in com- a hit piece. We'll no, definitely not a hit piece. A total hatchet um, job. But I, I would say a segment in conversation with their episodes uh, when they when they when the second one comes out. I, I'm not guaranteeing I'll do that, but there's there's a decent chance that I might. Um, but this this article, uh, you know, I, I didn't plan it. I didn't know what they were going to put out. But it's actually an opportune time for it to be published because I think it it does. Uh, relate pretty strongly to some of the things they brought up in their first episode about calories. Um, and so, yeah, like it's it's an interesting question. So uh, the the basic science of, of calories is very straightforward. You know, if you're consistently eating fewer calories than you expend, you should lose weight. If you're consistently eating more than you expend, you should gain weight. Um and you know that that seems very simple. It, it seems like you have a model with two variables: calories in, calories out. Not too much to worry about. And so it seems like calorie counting should be an almost foolproof method to gain or lose weight when you want to, and at approximately the rate that you want. Uh, but you know, a lot of approaches to calorie counting have been around for a long time. And they've been successful for a lot of people, but they also haven't been particularly successful for a much larger number of people. And so, you know, basically what I wanted to kind of investigate and explore in this article is why is that? Uh, so what I did is is first just basically look around and say like, well, okay, uh, what if people are going to be counting calories, what general approaches do they use uh, to that end? Like, how are they determining their calorie targets that are uh, hopefully going to get them where they want to go? And there seem to be three broad approaches people take. So the first one is, uh, you know, they, they just read somewhere that like, hey, you know, you should be aiming for this number of calories, and that is the right number. And, and kind of the uh, I think most iconic version of this sort of recommendation is just the recommendation given to a lot of female dieters that like 1200 is the number aim for 1200. If you hit 1200, cool, you'll lose weight. Good things will happen. Um, but you know, I, I've seen some other numbers proposed. So a, a similar number I've seen thrown out for men is like 1500 calories. Um, 
And, you know, this sort of logic is implicit on U.S. nutrition labels. Like, they they give you uh, percentages for calories, macronutrients, saturated fat, etc., like, as a percentage of a 2,000-calorie diet. Like, they they just kind of, like, presuppose that's what people are aiming for. Um, And, you know, it, it says explicitly on the label, like, you know, this, not everyone needs to be aiming for 2,000 calories. Like, this is just an example. But I, I think that um, a lot of people do just, like, implicitly interpret that as kind of a one-size-fits-all calorie target. Uh, and so, you know, that's that's one method people use. Another popular method that people use uh, more and more within the last 5 to 10 years is using a wearable device that estimates your energy expenditure. So, you know, like a like a Fitbit, uh, like a Garmin watch, Apple Watch, something like that. Um, and you know, those those devices will. Uh, I mean, it, it's a it's a very rough estimate of your energy expenditure, but I think people assume that it, that it's like really meticulously calculating your energy expenditure. So that's that's another uh, method people will use to generate calorie targets. And then there's a third approach, which is, you know, I think this is the go-to approach, uh, certainly for people from like the bodybuilding world, also like kind of the evidence-based fitness world, where you start with a calculator of some sort, a total daily energy expenditure calculator or TDEE calculator, um, where, you know, you might tell it your age, sex, weight, uh, maybe body fat percentage, uh, your activity levels. And it will estimate your total daily energy expenditure. And then it's like, well, okay, like now I know this number. So if I just eat below that, uh, you know, I can lose weight. If I eat above that, I can gain weight at approximately the rate that I want. Uh, So this article just basically goes through and talks about where those three approaches can break down that may not be entirely obvious to people who... um, you know, maybe just don't coach people or don't spend quite as much time in the literature. And so starting with the one-size-fits-all calorie targets, uh, this is one that I feel like most people in our audience will agree maybe isn't the best way to approach this. Um, but it, it is, I think, the most popular approach just in kind of the, the general diet culture. Um, and so the the most obvious downside of this approach is just that, uh, especially if you're going with that 1,200 number, that's not many calories. And, you know, there there are drawbacks to having too low of a calorie target and losing weight too fast. So I don't want to fear monger. Like, a, a decent number of people can lose weight very quickly and everything goes pretty smoothly for them. But a lot of people also will run into problems. So, you know, acutely, um, you know, low energy, fatigue, constant hunger, cravings, and chronically, if your calorie targets are too low, especially if you don't have a sufficient resistance training stimulus, you might lose a lot of muscle. And then uh, there's research suggesting that if you lose a lot of muscle uh, or just a lot of lean mass when you're dieting, that is associated with pretty pretty notable elevations in appetite uh, as your body is attempting to regain that muscle that you lost which not all the time, but oftentimes just leads to weight overshooting and, and uh, finding yourself in, in the world of yo-yo dieting, which uh, is not a good place to be. But then the other 
The other less common drawback to this approach, and, and I might catch some flack for saying this, but it's true, so if you're upset, uh, I'm sorry, I guess, uh, is that even those low-calorie targets, for some people, might be a little bit too high. So some people find that, you know, I, I'm eating 12, 1,300 calories per day, I'm not losing weight, um, you know, am, am I making mistakes? Like, am I eating way more than I think I am? And most of the time, you probably are. <laughs> but uh, there's, um, so there was a 2021 study by Ponser and colleagues that used uh, doubly labeled water data uh, with like 6,400 individuals from around the globe to get a pretty good idea of what uh, people's total daily energy expenditures were uh, at, at different body weights and across the lifespan. And what you see looking at their data is that the vast majority of adults do expend, say, like 1,500 calories per day plus, but uh, a minority of people are uh, like legitimately expending somewhere in the 1,000 to 1,200 calories per day range. Or not much over that. So, you know, if you're expending 1,350 calories per day, if you're eating 1,200 calories per day, uh, it's still not much, but you also are going to be losing weight very, very slowly. So, uh, you know, the, the problem... Which to the to the naked eye might look like no weight loss at all. Correct. You know, over yeah. a short time frame. Yeah. And so the, the basic problem with one-size-fits-all targets is that <laughs> one size does not fit all. Uh, so what, whatever number someone throws out there, it will be a very appropriate calorie target for a minority of people, and it will be way too low for a pretty good chunk of people, and it might actually be too high for a very small number of people. So that's, that's the, the basic problem there. A very popular approach to calorie counting for the purpose of managing nutrition, losing weight, uh, not quite as popular for gaining weight. I, I don't see people being like, oh yeah, you want to gain weight, just everyone aim for 5,000 calories. Um, but, you know, th this is a very popular approach people take, and it has some pretty clear downsides. Uh, the second popular approach that I mentioned was using wearable devices to estimate your energy expenditure. And, you know, then essentially, like if, you're, if your wearable device says, oh, you're burning 2,500 calories per day, you take that pretty literally and say like, okay, well, if I'm down around uh, 1,800 to 2,200, I should be losing weight at a pretty decent clip. So cool, like I can take that to the bank, use that to generate calorie targets and be good to go. The problem is that wearable devices do <laughs> uh, like a, a famously bad job of estimating energy expenditure. And this is something that I think like every researcher in the area is very aware of and maybe 10% of consumers are aware of. Um, so like there was a 2020 systematic review that just plots uh, for, for all of the studies that have used wearable devices to estimate energy expenditure at rest during different exercises, uh, etc. It just plots them all on a single graph so you can see what the mean percentage error is for each device and each study to just kind of get uh, a broad overview of how good of a job these devices do. Again, not not for individuals. Like the, the total range of individual errors 
will be larger than the total range of average errors within the studies conducted. But so th this th this figure shows you the the range of errors for average uh, uh, percentage estimation estimation errors. And so what you can see is that you know they they kind of cluster around zero, uh, which you know you would hope that they would like if if they did just like consistently overestimate energy expenditure by 40% they'd be horrifically bad uh but you know it does kind of cluster around zero but you see a lot of errors that are like in the 50% plus or minus range so like if a wearable device is saying oh yeah you're burning 2000 calories per day it's possible that it's 1000 it's possible that it's 3000 um and and kind of my my point of saying like okay like this is working well enough is basically like is this producing errors that are smaller than about ten percent like you know I I think that that's a fair amount of error uh, to allow for and also like it's it's a practically useful amount of error so if you're say trying to be in a five hundred calorie deficit to lose about a pound per week and you're burning twenty five hundred calories per day. A 10% error would, would mean essentially that, you know, if you think you're in a 500-calorie deficit, you might actually be in a 250-calorie deficit, you might be in a 750-calorie deficit, but you'll be losing weight at around half a pound to a pound and a half per week. Like, you're, you're in the right general ballpark for what you're aiming for, uh, and the, the evidence, like, very conclusively shows that errors that are smaller than 10% in magnitude are far less common than errors that are considerably larger than 10% in magnitude. So, uh, yeah, using a wearable device to generate calorie targets for the purpose of calorie counting to gain, lose, maintain weight, um, you know, for, for a minority of people, they work really well. For the majority of people, uh, we, we pretty conclusively know that they don't work well for that purpose. Yeah, th that gets at a, a common thing that you see, which is like, so if you've got, uh, if you have, uh, you know, run studies before, then, you know, one of the first things you think about with any instrument is what does it measure? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you don't think, what does the output say? You say, no, what does it measure? Right. Right. And I think a lot of the direct to consumer type products um, there's just not enough emphasis on that. You know, like you, I, you'll, you'll see, um, instances where someone said like, yeah, I got my metabolic rate measured and you'll say, oh, how'd you get it measured? And it'll be like in a bod pod yeah. or like using a, a BIS device or a BIA device. And so like a lot of these, uh, technologies that are getting used a lot in commercial gym settings and, and direct to consumer devices, there's not enough emphasis in my opinion on what is being directly measured and from that, what is being estimated. Yeah. And I think the more you dig into that, you say like, oh, this thing that's measuring your energy expenditure certainly is not measuring your energy expenditure, Correct. which is a really, a really uh, challenging thing to convey to people. Like people don't enjoy hearing that because they're like, well, then what did I just buy? Yeah. You know, but, but it's an important clarification. Yeah. Yeah. So, so ultimately what wearable devices are measuring is they're measuring heart rate. Um, they're measuring, they're measuring movement one of two or sometimes both ways, uh, either via GPS or via accelerometry. 
Uh, and some of them are also measuring body temperature, like a, a rough estimate of body temperature. Like, like they're measuring wrist temperature, basically. Uh, and all three of those things are associated with energy expenditure, but it's it's far from a one-to-one association. And uh, what we do know is the more of that data that they consider, so like a, uh, something that measures all three. So, you know, let's say it, it's doing accelerometry, it's measuring heart rate, and it's measuring skin temperature. Uh, that will generate a better estimate than something that is just accounting for one of those. Like the the earliest wearable devices... I think it was basically just heart rate. Uh, and you generate really, really just piss poor estimates of energy expenditure if all you have to go off of is heart rate. You can generate a little bit better estimates if you have both heart rate and accelerometry or GPS data. And you can generate a little better estimates if you add skin temperature into the mix. But all of those variables have far from like a one-to-one relationship, like a, a an R equals one correlation with energy expenditure. And so they, they are, it seems, getting a little bit better over time at generating slightly more precise estimates. But I, I mean, we're still, we're still a long way away from those being very highly precise estimates. Yeah. Okay. And then the, the third approach that people commonly take, um, to generating calorie targets to gain or lose weight at a desired rate uh, is is they basically use the formula approach. Uh, And maybe they do this by hand, or maybe they go to a website that has one of these calculators built in. And uh, essentially what it does is, uh, I mean, much like I I just described with with wearable devices, it will use uh, information about you that correlates with energy expenditure to estimate your basal metabolic rate. So uh, depending on the equation being used, uh, age, sex, weight, body fat percentage, um, and body fat percentage would be to estimate uh, the total amount of lean mass you have. Uh, All of those things are going to be associated with basal metabolic rate. You plug all of that uh, or some of those things into a calculator, and it will uh, generate an estimate of your basal metabolic rate. And then from there, you know, you're, you're doing more than merely surviving, like you're, you're doing some movement. So then you multiply that figure by, uh, by an, an energy multiplier or an activity correction factor to then estimate your total daily energy expenditure. And then you have that number and, uh, you know, you can use it to generate calorie targets for the purpose of gaining or losing weight. But, you know, that, that begs the question, much like we've been talking about this whole time, uh, what what sort of error is associated with that approach? So, you know, ideally you want to be able to pretty reliably generate estimates of total daily energy expenditure that are pretty close to people's actual total daily energy expenditure. Uh, and the interesting thing that I found when I looked into this, like, you know, basically how, how precise is that estimate? What, what I found, and... It's possible I missed something, but I, I looked pretty hard. Um, so what I found is there's an enormous amount of research uh, looking at how accurate and precise uh, BMR estimates are. But I could not find any research um, uh, validating or looking at the relative accuracy and precision of TDEE estimates using formulas like this. Um 
So, you know, essentially, so we know that the BMR formulas are, I would say, good but not great. Like, they, they do as good of a job as I think you could reasonably expect them to do. So, depending on the formula in question and the population being studied, the typical error of these formulas is anywhere between, like, maybe 150 calories and, like, 400 calories, but, you know, mostly in, like, the 200 calorie per day range. So, if, uh, if if something tells you that your BMR is 1,600 calories per day, you can kind of tack like a 200 plus or minus error range on that. And, you know, it, it's probably, what did I say, 1,800, 1,600? I think I said 16. I think um, so. Whatever. So if it says 1,600, your BMR is probably somewhere between 1,400 and 1,800 Individual errors can certainly be larger than that, but in in all probability, it's within that 400 calorie range, 200 plus or minus, uh, which you know could be more precise. But given the estimate, the the information being plugged into that calculator, um, you know that's I, I feel like that's about as good as you could reasonably hope for it to do. Uh, but then the the next step of that process, going from a BMR estimate to a TDEE estimate is uh, that's more of a crapshoot. So basically there there are uh, various sets of activity multipliers that you can use, but by far the most common one I see is 1.2 if you're sedentary, 1.375 if you're lightly active, 1.55 if you're moderately active, 1.725 if you're very active, and 1.9 if you are extremely active. Like, th- those are the, the qualitative uh, categories, sedentary through extremely active. And uh, those those numbers I gave is what you would multiply your BMR by to estimate your total daily energy expenditure. Uh, and so you immediately run into one problem, which is just how do you classify yourself? Uh, and so the the descriptions for these aren't very helpful. Like they tend to not disambiguate lifestyle versus like dedicated exercise. So, for example, the description for sedentary is inactive job and very rare or minimal exercise. And so, you know, what if you have an inactive job but you exercise five days a week? Um, you know, it it it's it's hard to say or extremely active, uh, hard daily exercise, and other regular physically demanding tasks. So what if you do hard daily exercise but have a sedentary job? You know, so it, it's it's hard to know which of these categories you're supposed to fall in. And even beyond that, uh, this is this is, I think, more subtle. But even if everyone did perfectly know which one of those categories they fell into... Uh, simply by by multiplying by kind of bucketed activity factors, you still increase the estimation error for total daily energy expenditure calculations. So, you know, let's say that you, um, you know, let's say your total daily energy expenditure is 1.45 times your basal metabolic rate. So you would fall in between lightly active and moderately active. And if you choose either of those two multipliers, that's going to generate uh, somewhere around 5% additional error just because those activity factors are bucketed. Uh, And so with all of that information, um, I was very curious like what the relative accuracy of these TDE calculators actually were. And like I said, I couldn't find any research on that. 
but we we know enough that we can we can model it uh, pretty well. So that's what I did in this article, and that at least for me personally was the part that I found most interesting and the part that I liked writing about the most. Um, so you can you can check out the article to see my methodology. Uh, and also I, I linked a spreadsheet that you can use to tinker with my assumptions if you want to generate uh, different estimates. Uh, but I, I, you know, tried to generate the most, uh, the most justifiable set of assumptions that I could uh, in order to attempt to quantitatively uh, address this question. And uh, so I, I was interested in basically how often does this process generate a total daily energy expenditure estimate that is close enough to your actual total daily energy expenditure that from the jump, uh, calorie targets that you generate using this approach will get you pretty close to the desired rate of weight gain or weight loss you want. And uh, basically what I found is that it works about half the time. Um, so for about, for a little less than 50% of people, the total error generated by this approach is less than 250 calories per day. So, you know, if you're uh, actually burning 3,000 calories per day, uh, you know, maybe a calculator will say 3250, maybe it'll say 2750, but that's in the right general ballpark. If you're trying to lose a pound a week, you'll end up losing half a pound to a pound and a half per week, like doing a pretty good job. Uh, but for the other approximately half of people, it's it's generating relatively inappropriate calorie targets, uh, which can, for a very small minority of people, be, be in excess of 1,000 calories per day, which could mean if you're trying to lose a pound per week, you're actually gaining a pound per week, which or losing three pounds per week and in a huge deficit. Um, the, the most common kind of category of error was between 250 and 500 calories per day, uh, which would essentially mean that if you were trying to lose a pound a week, you would be losing close to two pounds per week or losing weight at a essentially glacial pace. Like that that was about a third of people have errors on that magnitude. So essentially this process is, it does a decent job of getting you in the right general ballpark to start with, um, but you'll, you'll definitely need to uh, make adjustments probably from the jump for most people and certainly over time as metabolic adaptation kicks in. Um, and so then at the end, full disclosure, there is a little macro factor pitch. Uh, you know, essentially, once you have all of that information, you can make adjustments yourself, you know, based on your, your rate of progress, whether or not you're plateauing, or you can use a software that, that will do all of that for you. Um, but yeah, the, the, 90% of the article, fully informative, little pitch there at the end. If you're mad about it, uh, that's okay. Yeah, just email Greg if you're mad about it. Email um, Eric, because he's the host of the podcast. So, and yeah. he, he let this segment happen. I did. I let it happen too long as well. <laughs> we're, we're way over time. That's okay. Um, so uh, I, I thought you did a great job with this article. And, and just to highlight what you said, um, I think this article is like solid content for people who field questions about or who have questions about hey um why does there seem to be why do so many people seem to struggle with these standard approaches to 
calorie-based interventions. You know, it's so common that you hear people say, yeah, calorie counting, it doesn't really work. Mm -hmm. Um, And there is some truth to that. You know, I mean, uh, the, the physics, you know, works. But in terms of just the the straightforward intervention of calorie counting using some of these strategies, you can find certainly instances where people have done their very best to apply these techniques and are not achieving the type of results that they're looking for. Yeah. And in some cases, not even close. So, of course, you know, energy balance exists and works. But, you know, this article goes into some of the details of really common errors that find their way into a lot of real world approaches to calorie counting. And like you said, there's, uh, you know, there's stuff in here about uh, error from common equations, error from wearable technology. So there's a lot of good stuff in here uh, that isn't just a sales pitch. I mean, ultimately what it comes down to is there are two factors. So if if an approach to calorie counting is going to work, you need to be able to generate appropriate uh, uh, calorie recommendations and you need to be able to execute on those recommendations. And I think that I think that one problem people run into is what whatever approach they're using to generate calorie recommendations, like uh, of these three popular approaches, they very understandably assume that the estimate that they're generating is a highly accurate and precise estimate when it isn't. Uh, and I think that that a lot of that falls on people who are who are promoting this stuff because, you know, ultimately with anything, there's there's some amount of error and uh, people rarely talk about that. Uh, and when they do, they they probably don't quantify just how large those errors can be, which can make the dieter feel like like they've failed when really they, they just weren't aiming for the right numbers to begin with. Um, and I think also like in a community setting that can get kind of toxic. Cause if you, if you have a community where, you know, you go through a process, you get a calorie target, you as the dieter are doing a great job of hitting that every day and you're not seeing the results you want. Uh, very commonly I see people post about that online. Like, Hey, I use this calculator. I got these numbers. Like I'm, I'm trying to lose weight. I'm not losing weight. And then they just get a wall of responses that's just like, well, you're fucking up. Like, you're clearly eating way more than you're tracking or, like, you're doing a bad job somewhere. Like, like this is on you. When, like, you know, sometimes it is, but uh, I think more often than people realize, it's because they, they just weren't shooting for the right numbers. And, and I think that this also relates to what is now becoming a more popular refrain of of you know, people saying like, oh, like calorie counting doesn't work, like it can't work, like, uh, like it's, it's so complicated, blah, blah, blah. And like, I mean, ultimately what I, what I think it comes down to is a lot of people did try some of these approaches and they had a really bad experience. And what actually happened is they, they were just never shooting for the right targets in the first place through, to be clear, absolutely no fault of their own. And then when it didn't work out, uh, the way that they internalize that is, oh, well, like something must have happened with with my hormones or like maybe there's something going on here that just calories in, calories out doesn't account for. When, 
you know, really it was just that they they weren't shooting for the right numbers. Um, and so, yeah, like I, I think that this is is valuable information for people to have because I, I think, or at least I hope, it should clear up a lot of confusion and, and maybe even like ameliorate some amount of guilt for people who have tried some of these approaches before. It didn't work out for them and they didn't know why. Um, you know, there, there's there's a pretty good chance that you did everything right and uh, yeah, you, you just used an approach that didn't give you an appropriate calorie target to begin with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, at its core, calorie counting does work. Um, but like you said, you have to be shooting for the right target and you have to be, uh, you know, in a position where you're able to sustainably and repeatedly hit that target on yeah. a regular basis. So if those two factors come together, you're in great shape. But, you know, th there is a lot of uh, challenge associated with trying to identify where that target should be. Mm -hmm. And as you alluded to, adjusting that target over time because it is not going to be in the same place throughout the entire course of a diet in mm -hmm. most cases. Um, all right. So we're, we're like an hour 15 in, uh, yeah, let's, what, what do you want to do here? Let's, uh, let's save tech support for next time and, uh, okay. play us out. Yeah. I'll, I'll hit the people with a little cliffhanger here. Every time I do that, people hate it, but, uh, <laughs> we basically, uh, all of our segments today have taken longer than, than I thought they would. That's okay. Um, so what, here's what's gonna. Here's what's on the menu, the forecast for the future. Uh, I'm gonna circle back and talk about practical recommendations for implementing high intensity interval training. I teased that last episode and failed to get to it, but that's okay. I'm gonna dig into some of this, some of the stuff we alluded to about the mechanisms of buffering supplements, specifically for the contractile properties of muscle. You know, to to figure out what are the totality like what 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 are all the contributing contributing mechanisms that might be uh you know uh, yielding effects for things like beta alanine and um sodium bicarbonate and even uh hyperventilation i'm going to try to circle back to that even briefly to see if i can dig up some clarity about what some of these buffering supplements might be doing if they're impacting uh, you know, some of these um, force related outcomes without, you know, necessarily maybe low, uh, you know, pH buffering is not technically the thing that is driving that effect. I'm going to dig into that a little more, see if I can uh, provide the people with a little more clarity. Um, and then we're also going to have a tech support segment that is going to talk about some really, really, really big changes to the food logger within Macrofactor, uh, a huge, huge, huge overhaul of the food locker, uh, the food logger that has made it remarkably efficient and fast. So we're going to talk a little bit about what went into that overhaul and that kind of reimagination of the logging process. Um, and we even have some uh, quantifiable data to support, uh, you know, some of that excitement about speed and efficiency. So we're going to get to all that stuff later. Um, but this is about all the time we have for today's episode. So to play us out, um, I'm going to start off with, uh, oh, did you remove your yogurt? Yeah, I, I did. The The thing I have is very cool, but not yogurt related. Okay. Oh, but yeah. you do have something. Yes. Okay, cool. So I'll go briefly here. Um, I mentioned that I'm going to start giving some not television and movie media recommendations, mostly going to be music and podcasts. I talked about Radiohead last episode. 
Uh, I've got another band recommendation. Um, and one of the bands I really love, one of my favorites is Wilco. And they're a really interesting band. They, they are not, I, I don't think they're as widely known as Radiohead. Um, but Wilco is a really fascinating band. They've been putting out studio albums consistently since like 1995. And they actually just released one three days ago. Um, and it's not like one of those things where like, hey, let's get back together for one more. They've been trickling out albums for you know decades now. And if you want to know what genre they are, I don't really know where to begin. Um, they will generally generally be categorized as alternative country, um, but I don't think that does a good job of really describing what they are. Um, there's there's a little bit of folk influence, a little bit of bluegrass, um, a little bit of indie rock. They're a guitarist since 2004, really is mostly a jazz guitarist. Um, so it's just a, and, and there's, there's a lot of experimental elements mixed in when it comes to instrumentation and song structure. Um, so yeah, it, it's a little bit of everything that kind of comes together. And, uh, I really like music that is very complex and textured, you know, like I, I, I like bands that use a lot of different time signatures and different instrumentation. And one of the things Wilco does from time to time is, during a song, they'll kind of reach a crescendo that gets a bit chaotic. It's a little bit jazz-like in that fashion. Mm -hmm. And you kind of start to feel like the band has fully lost sync. But then they kind of fall back in and you realize it was all under control all along. It's it's a very unique thing that they do from time to time. But um, yeah, really, really fascinating band. And they have kind of that Radiohead thing going on where they span a few different genres to some extent. So depending on where you jump in with an album you're not necessarily certain uh, exactly what you're going to get. So this is another band that if you want to dive in, uh, you've got, what, about uh, 25, 30 years worth of music that you can dive into. So there's there's a lot to get to. Uh, I would recommend starting with one of two albums. I think Summer Teeth is a great album, and I really love Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Good deal. So my my little to play us out thing uh, is about everyone's favorite topic, and that is lichens. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, my my pocket recommendations, like when I when I open up a new tab on Firefox, uh, just recommended me this article from the Atlantic from 2016 by Ed Yong, and uh, I I found it completely fascinating. So I I grew up in the woods, um, and you know there were well in a house in the woods. I, I probably spent more time in the woods than in the house. Okay. Um, but yeah, so the, the house, the house I grew up in was in the, in the middle of the woods. And so, you know, you're just walking through the woods and there's just lichens all over the rocks, all over the trees. Like the, it was a pretty ubiquitous thing. And then when I got to either like middle school or high school and learned what lichens were, uh, I found them very fascinating. So there it's, it's like a whole class of organism that is not a single organism. Like it's it's a symbiotic organism. So uh, lichens are not just a thing. Uh, every lichen you see is, and this is what we learned, is is the union between a fungus and an alga. Uh, I'm just gonna say algae because th that's the plural, but I don't care. You could, um, you could do the the British pronunciation of algae. It, I'm saying algae. Okay. Uh, but yeah, so. Essentially, the way lichens work is, in, in, or what I learned, is that the fungus basically helps provide structure for the compound organism, 
uh, and, you know, can, can also help with like, uh, digesting, uh, dead plant matter to get, uh, a bunch of nutrients, but then the algae, uh, does photosynthesis to help, you know, generate the actual glucose needed for the combined organism. So it's, it's a symbiotic relationship. They both get something out of it. The algae gets protection and nutrients and the, the fungus gets energy basically. Um, and so I just thought that was so cool. And, uh, it turns out that that is not the whole story. The whole story is even cooler. So uh, one of the problems that scientists were having, apparently, is they couldn't get lichens to grow in, in a lab. And that is a surprising thing because since lichens aren't a single organism, they don't reproduce the way a normal organism does. Like it can't put out a lichen spore or a lichen seed or a lichen egg because it's, it's two things that both reproduce different ways. So it's thought that the way that lichens come to be is essentially you just kind of have like a fungus and an algae in the same place at the same time. And they just kind of like spontaneously organize into this this compound organism. Um, and so in theory, it, it seems like it should be very easy to make that happen in the lab. Like if if it's happening all the time in nature, we're just like, these two things are coming in contact and like, yeah, it just works out. You would think you'd be able to figure out the circumstances necessary to do that under, uh, like, in, in controlled conditions. Uh, but scientists couldn't. Like, they just couldn't get lichens to grow in the lab in a, in a predictable way. And um, turns out there was at least in the context of algae science, a pretty recent discovery, I think this article says it was 2011, which is that we were all wrong about lichens. It's not a fungus and an algae. It's actually two fun fungi and an algae. And that's very important. Um, because and it, and it was very surprising because essentially the second fungus uh, looks the same as the first fungus under the microscope. And that's how like most of this research was done via microscopy. And, you know, you're, you're just looking at slices of it and the two different fungi look the same. Like there's no reason to assume that it's two instead of just one. Uh, but um, eventually they, they basically did some genetic analysis of, uh, of lichens and they found that there's, you know, that, that basically, like, there were a lot of genes being expressed that weren't within, like, the main fungus's genome and weren't within the algae's genome. And they're like, oh, shit, there's another fungus here. Uh, so it is actually a compound organism with three different things going on that still manages to, uh, like, spontaneously organize and grow and do so kind of all the time and kind of everywhere, uh, which is fascinating. And I haven't checked in on, on lichen studies, but uh, yeah, th this article is from 2016. Hopefully scientists are having a better job growing lichens in the lab these days. Um, but I, I just found that very cool that something so basic, that, that was such a ubiquitous part of my life, um, like lichens were everywhere, that just like what they're made of uh, wasn't fully discovered. And I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I might be, this might be scientific hubris. Maybe there's even more going on, but, uh, it, at least like a we, third fungus, who knows? But yeah, a second like, algae, like so, something that momentous that like, Hey, there's a whole, there's another thing here. 
uh, that that we just learned about that as a species 10 years ago, uh, after lichens had been studied for hundreds of years with lab equipment. Uh, so I, I found that uh, very, very interesting. And that article will be linked in the show notes. Man, I didn't know that you had such a strong connection to lichens because I, I would have invited you over. I had uh, a, a tree expert come by the other day because I'm trying to avoid having all my trees fall on my home. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, uh, he pointed uh, out some lichens that I've got going on. Um, of course, not a problem. Uh, but it, it was cool, though. Uh, I am intrigued by expertise in all forms like when somebody really knows their shit and is just doing their thing Mm -hmm. uh it always impresses me no matter what they're doing it was so cool like we were walking around my yard he's looking at the trees and you know he'll take out a hammer and tap it and go "Mm -hmm." and i'm just like god what's going on in his head uh in one case he 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 went up to the the bark of the tree cupped his hands and (sighs) took a big sniff and was like all right, not bad. And I'm like, dude, what are you thinking? Like, what is happening in there? I was like, just blown away by the, you know, it's the type of thing that you just have to feel it and you have to have the the years of experience to really know what you're doing. But yeah, yeah expertise in all forms will always get me. But if you want to come check out some lichens, uh, I can point them out for you. I would definitely not say I'm a lichen expert, but I like them. I think they're cool uh, and, and they're nice to look at. Yeah. All right, um, so that does it for this episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. Uh, As always, thank you for joining us, and we will be back soon with another episode. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.